Furthermore, the equation E is equal mc squared. Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Welcome, everyone, to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. I am Isaiah Hankel, a Cheeky Scientist. Very excited for today's show. We are talking about the behavioral psychology of getting hired as a PhD or advancing your career or of business. Either way, you're going to want to stay tuned for this radio show. We have a very special guest, Nir Eyal, and we'll be bringing him on, and we'll be talking about his book, uh, Hooked, and really what he does uh, for, for his company and for his platform. Very well-known uh, author, very well-known um, uh, specialist in this area. And I know a lot of you have been interested in how to really get rid of the distractions during this time of year that are holding you back. We've been talking about for the last few weeks how hiring, especially for PhD level jobs, is through the roof in December. High, the highest levels we've ever seen were December last year, and we already have evidence that it's going to be the same this year. Maybe you don't know why. The reason why is because companies, there's a variety of reasons, and I'm going to simplify two of the major reasons. Companies have different departments, and these departments are given certain budgets to spend. If they don't spend the full budget by the end of the year, you might think, oh, it's a good thing. You'll get a promotion, et cetera. Might be good in a sense, but if you way underspend, you're not going to get that same budget going into 2020. So a lot of companies, their departments, they will want to spend their excess budget so they get the same budget next year. Let's just pull an imaginary number. Let's say there's a department at Pfizer or Google, wherever, and they have a million-dollar budget, likely a lot more. If they only spend $800,000 or euros or whatever your currency is, do you think they're going to get that million-dollar budget in 2020? No, probably 800000 So they want to spend that budget. There's also tax implications. The company overall might want to spend or reinvest more of their monies uh, so that they reduce the tax they have to pay because the more that they spend, the higher their expenses go, their profits go down, they're taxed on their profits. It's, uh, it's kind of a game. The key for you is, is that excess money is used on resources, big purchases. The biggest purchase, the most valuable resource, you, talent, especially technical talent, which is why you need to lean into your job search this year. It's also why we're doing a very special promotion on Monday, Cyber Monday, December 2nd, we're giving you 50% off any of our advanced programs. And this might be the first time that you're hearing about this. This Monday, December 2nd, all day long, you get 50% off any of our advanced programs. Now, that includes the Medical Science Liaison Alliance, the R&D Society, the International PhD Community, the Medical Writing Organization, or Scientist MBA, our five advanced programs you can get in for 50% off. Clearly, we've never done this before. It's just for Cyber Monday. Does not include the association, but it does include all of these advanced programs. Now, if you are looking to get technical training in the field of flow cytometry or microscopy, we have a special Cyber Monday deal for our technical programs as well. We're giving you lifetime access. These programs usually cost year over year. Our career programs that I just showed you, 
you get lifetime access. You join, you become a member, you get access forever. For our technical programs, it's annual recurring because the information is highly technical. We, uh, we have specialists who are uh, constantly adding uh, content. There's a lot of different tools that are involved for these technical programs. We have one for flow cytometry, one for microscopy. You get a lifetime membership. So this could be worth 40, 50, 60 years, but you're getting in for the one year membership, but you get access for life. We've never done this. It came up in one of our meetings. We thought it was a great idea to re-engage all of you who might be checking out for the holidays. You might say, well, I'll take, you know, I'll take a rest from my job search or my career in general, and I'll check back in on January. One last reason that it's important to re-engage this time of year is because December is the best time of year to get hired. If you get hired now, especially at the beginning of December, you'll be hired and then you get a couple of weeks to fully check out because they likely won't have you start till January 1st or you know, obviously after January 1st, after the new year. So you'll get a couple of weeks to relax, to rest, to revel in uh, the achievement of getting hired or getting promoted. So lean into your, your job search, your career development right now while everybody else is checking out. And this is something as a PhD you're used to doing um, because you've likely been on campus at your academic institution or elsewhere and everybody else was going home for the holidays, but you, you were there in your postdoc or as a grad student, maybe you couldn't afford going home, et cetera. Now's, now's the time where all of that training paid off, where you can focus and lean in uh, to your job search while everybody else is checked out and distracted. And that's what we're talking about today is avoiding distractions. We're going to be talking about the behavioral psychology of getting hired as a PhD, advancing your career as a PhD. And we are talking with Nir Eyal, very excited to have him on, best-selling author of the book, Hooked. And I'll be showing that shortly. I want to announce one more thing here. Uh, we have a, a great LinkedIn article, a great LinkedIn article, why most PhDs get hired in December and three holiday tips. Why most PhDs get hired in December and three holiday tips. Check this out. I love the tips at the end of this because one of the ones that I believe in the most is reaching out to people with the reason being the holidays. That's why you're reaching out. A lot of you struggle to reach out or to network on LinkedIn, to network by email. You're trying to get a job or advance your career, grow your network in general. The best messages, the best networking messages have the reason why you're reaching out. People are more likely to respond if you include a because. So if your reason for reaching out is the holidays, you, you have an, a, a reason ready to go. It's on tap. So use the holidays as the reason why you're following up. Follow up with everybody in your network during the holidays. Again, it just gives you that reason. Uh, number two, make a future-facing year-ahead resume and LinkedIn profile. Don't do what was working in 2019 or before. What are the trends? We've been talking a lot about sidebar resumes, for example. Get prepared for 2020. Be looking ahead. Finally, tap into end-of-year nostalgia and New Year's resolution anticipation for informational interviews. So when you set up an inter interview with somebody who's working at a company you want to work in, talk to them about how things went this year. Did they achieve their goals? Tap into that nostalgia of the year past and then bring it to the anticipation of the next year. What are their goals for 2020? This is a great way to lead them into a conversation about opportunities that might be opening up at that company for you, uh, the job candidate or the person that wants to get hired there. We have a lot more to share. I'm going to go through, I'm going to change things up today. We already have our, our special external leadership guest here, uh, Nir Eyal. I'm going to bring him on now. We'll do the show me the data after he's on. So I'm going to do an introduction of our, our very special guest, someone who I've 
read a lot of content from over the years and who I've been looking forward to uh, interviewing for a long time, uh, Nir Eyal. He's author, speaker, and thought leader. He writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. The MIT Technology Review, uh, dubbed Nir as the prophet of habit-forming technology. And I know we could all use some better habits especially when it comes to our careers. He founded two tech companies since 2003 and has taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Hasso, if I'm saying that right, Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. He's the author of the best-selling book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. I'm going to show you this book. Highly recommend it. Go buy it today. Also a great holiday gift for yourself or someone else. And Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Uh, he's, he has a great blog at uh, Near and Far. Very clever title. I love it. Near's uh, writing has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, TechCrunch, and Psychology Today. He is also an active investor in habit-forming technologies. Some of his past investments include Eventbrite, Refresh, Work Life, acquired by Cisco, Product Hunt, Marco Polo, Presence Learning, Seven Cups, Panna, Kahoot, Bite Foods, Focus Mate, Anchor, the perfect person to talk to about advancing your career. Go to his LinkedIn profile. We'll include all of this in the show notes, of course, but it's also in the chat box here. His new book is Indistractable. You can see both of his books here, but connect with him on LinkedIn. Reach out. Do it the cheeky way where you're adding value, thanking him for his time on the radio show. Here's his book, Indistractable, on Amazon. We'll put that into the chat box in the post uh, show notes as well. Hooked. This is was my first introduction to, to Nir. Incredible, incredible book. Very excited to read his new one. And if you want to learn how to be more productive, you can opt in here and get a, a great supplemental workbook for Indistractable. We'll put this link, link uh, in the chat box too. This is his website, Near and Far. And with that, we will bring on Nir. Let me make sure you can start your video here. And I think we have you on by, by audio. We should be able to get your video on. There we go. Yes, I'm here. Hi. Hey, great to see you. How are you, Nir? I'm doing very well. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. I, I got your book hooked soon after it came out. And I just think the field of behavioral psychology and habits, avoiding distractions, et cetera, is fascinating. Can you hear me okay? Oh, yeah, you sound great. Perfect. Um, so I always like to start with why. You know, we did a short bio. I'm going to, I might ask you more questions about that in a bit, but I always like to start with why did you get into this space? Why did you write your, your first book, Hooked? Yeah, so I write books when I read everything I can find about the topic and can't find a solution that I'm happy with. And so when it came to this question that I had in my mind, you know, I've started two tech companies and I um, uh, went to the Stanford Graduate School of Business where I later ended up teaching. And uh, at the time, I was just amazed by how these companies in Silicon Valley, like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat, what was it about these companies that made their products so sticky? Mm -hmm. And I, was, I looked for a book for how to utilize that secret sauce so that we could make all kinds of other products more engaging. And the idea being, you know, if we could steal the secrets of these companies in terms of the consumer psychology behind what drives them to be so engaging, well, maybe we could use those same tactics to help people form good habits in their lives. And so that's exactly what's happened in the past five years since Hooked was published. Uh, it sold quarter million copies and we 
see companies like Kahoot using it to get kids hooked onto in-classroom learning. Uh, Fitbod gets, wow. gets people hooked to exercising in the gym. Uh, the New York Times, one of my clients, uses the Hook model to get people hooked to reading the news. And so that was always the idea behind Hooked. It was how can we use the consumer psychology behind how some of the world's most engaging products and services uh, drive their customers to engage with their products? How can we you know, all use that in, in a business context to help people form good habits. And then, of course, you know, a few years later, the, the, the dilemmas really switch. You know, when I wrote Hooked, uh, it was published in 2014, uh, the problem that everybody talked about back then was how, you know, it's only geeks that can use technology. Technology is not user-friendly. Nobody can figure out how to use it. And, of course, now the tables have really turned. Now the problem is not that technology is, is difficult to use. Now the problem is, oh, my God, we all want to use it too much. Mm. And so I thought, you know, I'd go from a book about how to build good habits to then write about this problem that I was having at the time, which was now these bad habits that I'd associated, how sometimes I overuse these products that are designed to hook us. How can we, you know, from an insider's perspective, the fact that I know the consumer psychology around how they're built, I think put me in a really good position to explain the Achilles heel of how do we get the best out of these technologies without letting them get the best of us. Yeah, I really love how the, the tables have turned and completely agree. And I know everybody on here does too, because we're trying to get something done. Let's say, and for our audience, you know, they're trying to get a job or get a promotion, advance their career, just like many of the people you work with. Can you walk us through the key principles that you covered in both of those books? For, you know, sure. First, how to set up good habits, what you learned, and then and, and what you've taught for the people who haven't read Hooked, and then for indistractable what we can do to not be a slave to technology, but leverage it to our advantage. Yeah, so I think Indistractable, for, for those listening, is probably the more uh, relevant of the two books. Hooked is really for people who are building technologies, and Indistractable is for everyone who struggles to do what they say they're going to do, right? I, I, I know the pain. I mean, I, I wrote this book for me. I was patient zero, and uh, I know many, many people out there, you know, whether it's uh, grad students in particular, there's so much that can potentially distract you from doing what you know you should do. And that was exactly my position. I mean, five years ago, I constantly got distracted, whether it was, uh, you know, when I was with my daughter or when I was doing my work or when I was with friends and family, I was constantly getting distracted. And so I wanted to understand why. So I bought every book I could find on the topic and they all basically said the same thing. The, 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 the current, uh, you know, the, the self-help industry basically says it's all technology's fault. Stop using the technology and you're, you know, then you won't get distracted. But of course that doesn't work. I tried it. I got rid of my smartphone and I got a flip phone. I got a word processor from the 1990s that, that uh, I found on eBay that they don't even make anymore without an internet connection wow. and I still got distracted and yeah. I would still get distracted you know why you know you sit down at your desk and you say okay now I'm definitely gonna work but there's that book I've been meaning to read I should probably do some more lit review or let me just clean up my desk or I should probably take out my trash right that's kind of you know feels like a productive thing to do and I kept getting distracted mm -hmm. and so I didn't find a book that explained the deeper psychology around distraction so I really wanted to dive into the root causes and so the way I set up this paradigm is if you think about uh, the word distraction, right? What, what does that really mean? Well, the best way to understand distraction is to understand what is the opposite of distraction. The opposite of distraction is not focus. Many people think that the opposite of distraction is focus. I don't agree. If you look at the entomology of the word, actually the opposite of distraction is not focus, it's traction. Both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six-letter word, A-C-T-I-O-N. That spells action. 
So traction is any action that pulls us towards what we want to do. Now, the opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls us away from what we plan to do. So why is this so important? Number one, anything can be a distraction, right? How many times have you sat down at your desk and said, okay, now I'm going to work on that dissertation. Now I'm going to work on that hard project. I'm finally going to stop procrastinating. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do right after I check email. <laughs> right. <laughs> right after I Google this one quick thing, right? right? Right after I do just a bit more research. And I would argue that those tasks are what we call productive procrastination, right? Mm -hmm. It feels productive, but it's still a distraction because it's not what you plan to do with your time. So conversely, just like how anything can become a distraction, anything can be an act of traction. Mm -hmm. And so I argue the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. That if you plan to go on Facebook, to go on YouTube, to watch a Netflix film, there's no moral hierarchy here. Why is Facebook inferior to watching a football game? There's no yeah. difference. If you want to play a video game, enjoy yourself. But do it without guilt by planning ahead, by saying, this is what I want to do with my time. And as long as it's consistent with your values and you're doing it on your schedule, there's nothing wrong with it. So we've got traction. We've got distraction. Now the missing piece is why are we drawn to traction or distraction? This is where it gets really interesting hmm. because all of our behaviors are prompted by two types of triggers. We have our external triggers, the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things in our outside environment that prompt us to action. But in actuality, when we think, even though we, most people think about distraction coming in the form of these pings and dings, it turns out that most distraction does not start outside of us. But in fact, most distraction starts from within. Really? That the root cause of distraction turns out to be these uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. Boredom, anxiety, fatigue, uncertainty. It is those uncomfortable emotions that we turn to distraction to escape from. And if we don't come to terms with the fact that that is why we get distracted, we will always get distracted by one thing or another. So the first step to becoming indistractable is about mastering those internal triggers. This makes a lot of sense. And I think if you, ha if you had to admit it, you would say, I don't know what I should be doing right now. Like we all hear about people not having something set up for the, right when they come into the office. And if you don't, there's uncertainty. It's easy to get distracted. So you're saying that, that the uncertainty is the trigger not some ding on my phone or the email. It, it's all starting from within. So what, what can we do? How, how can we master, if it's an emotion, how do we master that? Because we're going to feel uncertain at some time, right. anxious, et cetera. What, what's the solution? Yeah, so the first step is to learn tactics to cope with that discomfort, right? People have been complaining about distraction since time immemorial. I mean, Plato complained about how distracting the world was 2,500 years before the iPhone. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. the technology didn't create distraction. It's yeah. always been here. And so the idea here is to look for the root cause of the problem. The root cause, step number one, has to be to arm ourselves, to equip ourselves with a way to deal with that discomfort in a healthier manner, right? We can harness those uncomfortable feelings. You know, part of what drives me crazy in the pop psychology and self-help industry these days is that you hear so many people telling us that if you're not happy all the time, if you're not satisfied with life, then something's wrong with you. And that is ridiculous and not helpful. And in fact, it backfires. If you think about it from an evolutionary basis, if there was ever a group of homo sapiens who were happy and satisfied with life, those people were probably killed and eaten by our ancestors. 
because that would not be a, a beneficial evolutionary trait. We are evolved to be perpetually perturbed. We, that's what kept us striving and searching and, and, and inventing and creating. That is a very powerful resource that we can harness to use that discomfort to lead us towards traction rather than distraction if we know how to harness it. And so there are three big tactics. We have to reimagine the trigger, reimagine the task, and reimagine our temperament. There's a lot more detail about how to do that exactly, how to implement those techniques, but that's step one. Step two is about making time for traction. Hmm. You know, it turns out that two thirds of Americans don't keep any sort of a calendar, okay? And even the one third who do keep a calendar, almost all of them only have work tasks on their calendar. But when it comes to our other values, right, values are defined as the attribute of the person we want to become. Do we only care about our work values? No, we also want to be devoted friends and available spouses. And, and, and we want to make sure we take care of our bodies, our minds. That time needs to be on your calendar because you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Hmm. So if you can't Tell me what it is you wanted to do. Everything is a distraction. Yes. And so we have to plan our days. We have to turn our values into time. And I show you how to do that, how to synchronize your schedule with the stakeholders in your life. And this isn't some you know, technique I made up. This is called making an implementation intention. All the, 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 the psych uh, people out there know exactly what I'm talking about. Thousands of studies have shown about uh, the benefits of making an implementation intention. Just a fancy way of saying planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. Mm. That's step two. Step three is to hack back the external triggers. So we know that these devices are designed to hack our attention. That's obvious. Who doesn't know that these days? That's, that's their business model. But there's no reason we can't hack back. So I show you in the book how to hack back these technologies in ways that Zuckerberg and Google can't do anything about. If we know how to hack back these external triggers, we can make sure that they only lead us towards traction rather than distraction. So like throwing then, your phone in the, in the river or what is the yeah. example? <laughs> I tried that. It doesn't work. You still <laughs> get distracted. Right. another one. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't work. You know, we keep blaming technology and technology is not the root cause of the problem. And there are all these external triggers that have nothing to do with technology. For example, the open floor plan office. Right? If you work around other people who are digging you on the shoulder and saying, hey, I got to tell you this bit of gossip or let me just tell you this one thing, that is just as much of a pernicious distraction. Emails, right? meetings, how many superfluous meetings do we go to that are a complete waste of time? So I tell you how to hack back all of those potential external triggers. And then finally, the last step is to prevent distraction with pacts. And pacts are this ancient technique, the first uh, story of someone using a pre-commitment device is in the story of Ulysses in the Odyssey. And so I show you how to make these different types of pacts with yourself and with other people to make sure you stay on track and do what it is you said you would do. And, and that comes down to accountability, right? So, you're, so you start with understanding the, the trigger, that it's inside the emotion. And I wanna circle back to that real quick because I think that is, is uh, very, very interesting for a lot of people here who may not realize they have emotions because we're PhDs and we live <laughs> in the world of logic, right? And then tasks, then you want to, and then from, so the, t, the three T's were so, trigger, so, task. And, and temperament, yeah. Temperament, okay. Yeah, we and didn't then, go into the details of that yet. Right, and then the, the uh, implementation strategy, hacking back, and the packs. 
Right. They're the three big ones. Okay. Right. And, and the PACs aren't just about accountability. It's not, it, that's part of it. But okay. actually, we know that there's a lot of wonderful psychology around how, how setting an identity, how powerful it can be. If you look at the psychology of religion, when we have some kind of moniker, some kind of noun that we use to call ourselves, that can actually help keep us accountable. So when someone calls themselves a devout Christian or an observant Muslim, or even a vegetarian for that matter, it makes it much easier for them to avoid doing things they don't want to do. So what do we do? We can become indistractable, right? What I'm trying to facilitate is this movement of people who say, nope, I am indistractable. I act a certain way because of who I am. And it sounds a little strange, but remember, we've been here before. When I grew up in the 1980s, I remember some of my first memories is people coming to my home and just lighting up a cigarette, right? They would walk into your living room. Anybody who was, uh, who was born after the year 1980 probably doesn't remember this. But prior to, you know, prior to the mid-1980s, this is what people did. They just walked into your home and expected to light up a cigarette. Mm. Can you imagine if that happened today, if someone just came to your living room and lit up a cigarette? That's ridiculous. That's incredibly rude. Well, what right. changed? Was it a law that said that people can't smoke inside other people's living rooms? No, mm -hmm. there's never been such a law. What changed was our norms, our manners around when we can do certain things. And so I remember the first time my mom told somebody, hey, we are non-smokers. We don't smoke here. If you want to smoke, you have to go outside. She lost friends over that. People thought that was wow. so rude to be asked to smoke outside. And that's what we need to have right now. So it's called spreading social antibodies. We need to facilitate this message that there's a right place and a wrong place to use technology. There are antisocial ways to use social media, right? Social media should be an additive, not a replacement to our relationships. And so sometimes we need to put these things away. And the way we spread those social antibodies is by having this moniker, by saying, I'm a non-smoker or I'm indistractable, tells people, this is how I behave because of who I am. And wow. is it really so different from uh, someone who wears unusual religious garb or has an unusual diet? No, it's not so different. It just requires some brave people to stand up and say, this is who I am and how I behave. So you're talking about tapping into a lot of behavioral psychology thing. So this, this case, the power of identity, right? Somebody says they're a, a crossfitter or a, a yeah. smoker, right? Good or bad. It's, it's really powerful. Very powerful. Uh, yeah. And I think the, the emotional piece or the behavioral or the psychology piece is what gets lost on a lot of people. And I think, especially for the, the group that we're talking to here, the idea that uh, of understanding or being self-aware of, of those emotions, those triggers. So you said everything kind of starts there. Can I ask how, can you be more self-aware of those emotions? And then what's the first step? Obviously we'll get, you know, everybody's going to get the book and, and we're going to sure. get through it, but I would love to have insight alive. Here. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. So let me give you just a, a very uh, actionable technique that you can use starting today to help you become indistractable. And by the way, becoming indistractable is something you're never done doing. It's not something you ever start doing either. It's through incremental steps. You don't have to do everything in the book or everything I described right away. You right. can become step by step by step uh, more indistractable by being the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do, the kind of person who lives with personal integrity. So to answer your question, that first step around mastering the internal trigger, how do we reimagine the internal trigger? How can we make sure that when we feel these uncomfortable emotional states, stress, fatigue, loneliness, uncertainty, whatever it might be, how do we make sure that we act in a way that serves us as opposed to a way that we feel like we are serving the distraction? Mm. So one technique that I use every single day, and this comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. I didn't 
make it up, it's decades old, is called the 10 minute rule. The 10 minute rule says that we can give in to any distraction, any temptation, as long as we wait for just 10 minutes. Now, why is this technique so much more effective than strict abstinence than just telling yourself, no, I'm not going to have that piece of chocolate cake or I'm not gonna check Facebook right now. Why is that technique so, why is this technique so much more effective? Because I'll, I'll demonstrate actually. I want you right now, as you're listening to my voice, whatever you do, do not think about a white bear. Don't do it. Don't think about a white bear. Of course, you're thinking about nothing but a white, a white bear. bear. Right. So strict abstinence actually can backfire. Here's how. If you pull on a rubber band and you pull, 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 pull on that rubber band, you keep pulling it until you can't pull anymore. Eventually it's going to release, right? And it's not going to just go to where it started. No, it's going to ricochet even farther. So when we tell ourselves, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Okay, fine. I'll give in. That release of tension is yeah. actually registered in the brain as pleasure. And so we are actually mm. training ourselves mm. to use this relief valve as a source of the alleviation of discomfort, which trains us to do it more. So instead of strict absence, strict absence can work sometimes with certain substances or behaviors, but when it comes to food, we have to eat. When it comes to technology, we have to use this stuff. We can't just stop using it or go on some stupid digital detox. We can't do that. We'll lose our livelihoods. So instead, what you want to tell yourself is, I can give in to that temptation, to that distraction, in just 10 minutes of doing what psychologists call surfing the urge. Okay? I can eat that piece of chocolate cake I know I really don't need. I can have a smoke of that cigarette. I can Google that thing that I, I really want to check right now in just 10 minutes. Okay? Mm -hmm. And in those 10 minutes, you have a choice to make. You can either get back to the task at hand or surf the urge with curiosity rather than contempt. Okay. Mm. And what does that mean? So, you know, when it comes to distraction, people s fall into a few different buckets. They're either the blamers, the blamers say, it's my cell phone, it's Facebook, it's the technology that's doing it to me, yeah. or the shamers, right? The shamers blame themselves. What we want to do is to be a claimer, to say, I can't affect necessarily how I feel, but I can change my response to that feeling. And so for in those 10 minutes, we just want to sit there and feel that sensation. What is it that we are experiencing that is driving us towards distraction? And you'll find that nine times out of 10, by the time those 10 minutes are up, you'll be back to that task at hand. And that urge that felt so urgent will have subsided and gone away. Yeah. And uh, I have to say, I don't know if this is exactly the same, but when I was finishing up my PhD, I was really stressed and I became almost like a... a a little bit of a hypochondriac. I was having like panic attack symptoms, et cetera. And I read and I don't know, cognitive behavioral psychology book that if you, if I wrote it anyway, I don't know how I got there, but if I wrote it down, yeah. like if I had to go to the doctor and I wrote it down, I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to put this in my calendar for next week to talk to the doctor, to go to the doctor. By the time next week rolled around, I wouldn't need to go. <laughs> like it was it, just putting it down on something or like you said, planning or giving yourself that space to surf the urge, it went away. Right. I didn't right. really understand that until you just said it. Absolutely. Or, you know, simply writing down that sensation. What is that internal trigger that prompts you to seek out the distraction, right? The uncertainty, loneliness, stress, fatigue, just writing it down has been shown to be a very effective technique to gain greater agency and control over that sensation. Gaining agency. I love that word. Uh, can I ask you one more question about Please. protecting, you know, I really like this idea of protecting your focus, becoming indistractable, you know, because we have the people who have showed up live here, I like to give them something special. So what, what would be like your, your top 
strategies, maybe ones that are even, you know, slightly adapted from the book that you've tweaked yeah. and made even better? What would, you, what would you say? So it's, it's really about using all four techniques in order, right? People have maybe heard one technique or the other, uh, but it's really about using them in order. And I spent five years writing this book principally because I was very distracted at first. And I didn't know these techniques until I <laughs> used them in my own life. Wow. Uh, but, then, but then also, you know, I found that, you know, there's a lot of folk psychology out there that people try and implement their life. But if we don't do these steps in order, they can often backfire. So the first step has to be to master the internal triggers. That is the ultimate source of distraction. Then we make time for traction. You have to keep a calendar, a time box calendar, so that you can tell the difference between what is traction and what is distraction in your life. Then we have to hack back the external triggers. And only finally, because the fourth tactic is actually the most dangerous, it can actually backfire, only then do you make these packs, these pre-commitment devices to mm. prevent distraction. Okay, so this, so the system, and for, for those of you watching, right, protocols, lesson plans, et cetera, you have to do them in the right order. So doing those in the order together uh, is the best way to, to protect your focus. Right. Um, Nir, thank you so much for coming on with us. Very uh, learned a lot and really enjoyed your, both your energy and your insights. Uh, very, very intelligent and then beyond what uh, most of us know. And I think it's going to help us save a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of time, a lot of focus. I so appreciate much. it. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Isaiah. Thank you. Thank you. Please thank Nir in the chat box if you <laughs> haven't yet. Exciting. Thank you, Nir. Thanks um, so much. We're going to put all of this, uh, all of the conversation in the post show notes, of course. We'll, we'll highlight everything for you. I'm going to show his, uh, his book one more time. I have the, the Kindle version up now. Let me share my screen. And I highly recommend going out and, and getting this book. I, I know that I'm going to. I've read Hooked, and I'm a, a big fan uh, of Nier's work. Very excited to read this. Indistractable. And uh, I love how he broke down the word uh, distraction to traction, and then, of course, action and, and uh, the different strategies. Anytime that somebody has a, a framework or a methodology, I know that we can all get on board with that. So uh, great. What would you think? For those of you who are in the association that are, that are in here in the chat box with us live, what would you think of Nier? I thought that was fascinating. So what we're going to do now is we're going to jump to the show me the data section, which is here. I'm going to bring on Mary Truscott, and we're going to go over some data. We're primed effectively with our conversation with, with Nier, which was fantastic. Uh, again, go connect with Nier on LinkedIn. Send him a, a nice message. Remember, do it the cheeky way. Add value first. Thank him for his time. Point out something that, that he mentioned uh, that really resonated with you. And, and we'll make sure to include all the links uh, in, in the post show notes. Go get his book, Indistractable. It is a, uh, it, it's, I know it's going to be a great read. I'm, I'm going to get it uh, today. Hooked, get that too. Uh, those of you who know me know that I love that book. All right, so I'm going to bring Mary on now. We'll bring Mary on, and she's going to go through the Show Me the Data section with us. Hi, Mary. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Isaiah? Good. What, what was your favorite part of uh, Nier's interview? Just to, I guess, breaking, breaking down distraction, what it is, understanding it better, because I think with so many topics, um, the more you understand, the more yeah. you can manage it, um, and he even gave steps uh, to manage it. So I just feel yeah. a lot more empowered after learning that. <laughs> and the, the emotional piece is... Uh, the biggest gains that I've made in productivity have definitely been on understanding uh, those emotional states. And it sounds, um, I think for a lot of PhDs, it sounds a little bit like, well, you know, where's the hard data on emotions? And of course, there's a lot out there in, in uh, psychology, behavioral psychology. 
uh, one that really helped me is if I was afraid of giving a talk or whatever, I started seeing that as a alarm bell, like intimidation that I needed to do that because it was going to help me grow more in some way. Like I used to really get freaked out if I had to speak in front of people. This, these ones like being uncomfortable um, are more difficult. I, can, I can't tell you how many times that I've come to catch up on things, maybe over the weekend in the office. And like for that first hour, I'm just, I'm like surfing the uncertainty of what to do in a bad way. Cause I'm just like, what else can I do here? Cause I don't plan out my weekends. And like Nir said, you have to plan out. If, if there's not a plan, you can't gain traction towards it. Uh, you know, so it's easy to get distracted. And I'll, I'll, you know, I like to put up motivational quotes or whatever. So I'll just like, Oh, I need another, I need something else on my wall in my office, or I need to clean this up, or I need to do move this around in the office. And then finally, after like an hour, I'll relax enough or figure out something more productive to do. And it's just, it all starts with the uncomfortableness of that emotion of not knowing right. what to do. Right. And whatever you were doing for that hour, there is something productive about it. It just wasn't the most important thing, right? Yeah. And there, was no, hard. there was no intention. Um, what, did he, what did he call it in the implementation intention? Yeah. Fascinating. Can't wait to read more about it. So I, I wanted to give us time to go through the show me the data section. So I'm going to jump to that here. And we got a lot of great figures to cover. Everyone should be able to see this. I'm going to make it a bit bigger. For those of you that are by audio only, what we're looking at here is how distractions contribute to de decreased focus and productivity. Uh, number one, the top distractions for workers. And this is an article at statista.com. Uh, what people find distracting at work, top workplace distractions cited by workers. And I, I'm, I'm excited to do this after talking to, to Nir because we can see what is correct or what might be incorrect. Maybe there's a, a better framework now that we can, we can put this in. Maybe people, what they think is distracting them uh, is, is not actually what's distracting them. So what are, what are the, we're looking at uh, five bar graphs here uh, with little icons. And again, we're talking about the top workplace distractions. Do you want to take us through these, Mary? Sure. Yeah. So these are perceived top workplace distractions that workers um, stated in a survey. 80% um, of them said that chatty coworkers are distractions. 70% um, <laughs> office noise. 61% feeling overwhelmed by changes at work. Um, I find that one pretty interesting. 60% yeah. meetings. We go back to meetings a lot, right? Talk about yeah. the purpose and yeah. And 50, 56% social media. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of these, the, uh, there's a lot of external things here, but I think if we always bring it back to what is the trigger or what's missing, right? It, I mean, could, a could understanding your emotions better in any of these situations help? Could having a, a, a pact, uh, could identifying as somebody who's, you know, uh, focused or indistractable instead help you with chatty coworkers so you don't feel like you, like just being able to say, I'm really busy during this hour. Let's catch up on this over lunch instead. Yeah. Right. Scheduling too, right? Leave Scheduling. time for chatting with the coworkers, but not at any random moment. That's one way to manage it. Yeah. And for, and for those of you who have seen any of our discussions on change management, I think that's why the middle one is so interesting because all of us have experienced changes. You, you've likely experienced changes in your, if you've TA'd or if you've worked in a lab, whatever you've done for your PhD, some change happened and you have to kind of reprocess everything, how you schedule your time, what you do, 
an instrument breaks down that you're using and you got to use something else, right? It can really uh, cause a dip in, in productivity. And, and a lot of people don't think about that. And from an employer's point of view, they want to manage change better. And a big part of change management is understanding stakeholders, the people involved, their emotions, and guiding those emotions uh, along with the change rather than whatever the change is. And uh, we, you know, we've, we've talked about an example from uh, one of our program leaders in Scientist MBA, Becky Papp. She worked at a company where they just changed the size of the screens by like an, like an inch or a couple centimeters. And this caused a disaster because people couldn't put as many different browser windows on the screen. And so what they had to learn to do was manage people's emotions before the change because it was the emotions that caused the drop in productivity. Right. And I think... Can I, can I just add to, I think um, we talk about how in industry things move more quickly, there could be big changes. Um, so this sort of being caught in this fast moving wave uh, mm -hmm. is something that could lead to more distraction, right? For people who are just getting used to working in industry. Yes. Um, so being aware of that ahead of time, knowing what the priorities are, um, building the relationships at work are gonna help manage um, these changes. In the Absolutely, absolutely, good, good point. Number two, how interruptions contribute to productivity. This is a, a Forbes article and study. 71% of people report frequent interruptions when they're working and only 29% say that they can block out everything else why, while working. Uh, I kept, this is something that Nir touched on too and it's making me think that I need to get large you know, soundproof walls for everybody in the office, but uh, not always possible. There are things you can do though, right? So it says data from the quiz. How do you, how do, does your time management skills stack up. We're looking at a red bar graph that goes up to 71%. When I'm working, I get interrupted frequently. And then a green bar graph, when I'm working, I block out everything else, only 29%. Not a huge surprise here, Mary, but maybe we could talk about strategies for reducing those interruptions. Like what did you do when you were in your postdoc? Or what do you do currently to get in that zone and to avoid interruptions, both online, virtually, or in person? Yeah, just in life, knowing I need to get something done with limited um, discretionary time is to know when I'm more likely to get that done um, and to announce to the people who might be distractions <laughs> that I'm going to focus on something. Yeah. Um, and I know just in interactions with um, people in a job I had, there was a writer that I knew who, you know, we have to be available to speak with each other, to interact with each other. But if he's focused on writing something, then he'll you know, check out of social media or of our communication device. Um, right. So I think just being able to be available when you should be available, but also protect a bit of time when you need it. Yeah. And so when you're using, a lot of it comes down to understanding the emotion. A lot of us, whether we believe it or not, don't like to uh, offend other people and we worry about how they feel. And if we know that we're feeling concerned or worried about how other people feel and we we're self-aware of that emotion, we'll have an easier time communicating what we need, right? So for like, like, for example, if you use, we use uh, Skype here to discuss uh, things that are happening uh, at Cheeky Scientist. You could use Slack. Some companies use their own internal instant messaging tool, whatever it is though. But the, you know, the pings can be constant, obviously. A lot of you experience this now. You have emails or whatever, and you're trying to figure out ways to, to not be distracted. If you just communicate, hey, during this time, I'm not going to be available. You put up a do not disturb on your instant messenger or you put up an away message or whatever it is and you let people know about it. It relieves all of that pressure that 
that uh, that negative emotion that you're you're feeling instead of just keeping it bottled up inside because you don't want to upset people. And really, it just comes back to those those triggering emotions. Uh, so don't think about it in terms of who you can blame for that. And I, I think this is what Nir was talking about. A lot of the studies and stuff that are out there about blaming, blaming coworkers. If you blame your coworkers, somebody else for distracting you, you're wrong. You need to more effectively communicate what you need or change your environment. The personal responsibility piece of, of what Nir talked about was uh, excellent. Number three, Asana Anatomy of Work Index reveals employees spend nearly two thirds of their day on work about work. <laughs> um, this is a Business Wire uh, article. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some things off here for those of you that are joining by audio only. The majority of respondents' time, 60%, is spent on work coordination, leaving only 13% for strategic planning and 27% for the skill-based job that they were hired to do, right? So 27% for execution, 13% for planning, 60% though just for coordinating when and what is going to happen. I'm not convinced this is a bad thing, but let's continue. Responding to the constant barrage of emails, notifications uh, is the primary reason that employees work uh, that log overtime hours, unexpected meetings, chasing people for input or approval. Uh, respondents surveyed believe that nearly two thirds of meetings are unnecessary. Over 10% of an employee's day, four hours and 38 minutes per week is spent on tasks that have already been completed. Oh, when I hear that, just it's painful. <laughs> this amounts to more than 200 hours of duplicated effort and decreased or uh, wasted efficiency. 46% of respondents surveyed clearly understand how their output contributes to the achievement of the organization, organization's objective and mission. So what's the trend here, Mary? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think so knowing what the, the purpose is, is going to allow you to get the work done. Um, and, and if everybody knows their purpose and the goal, then there's going to be less overlap of, and duplication of tasks, um, just self-awareness and then communication within the company. Um, and I think you, you commented on the top bullet how 60% um, of the time spent on work coordination, um, that may not be you know, a bad thing or that could be the reality. I think the, that 60% that could be the communication of what it is you're supposed to do right. and how to do it, what the goal is, so that when you're spending 27% of the time on that skill, you're doing it as you should do it. I, I think just life is kind of inefficient, right? And, and people try to do things quickly without communicating enough. Mm. Um, and, and so that explains it. And, and again, I, I will say this comes back to mastering your own emotions. Because for me, when I get, when a lot of things starts happening, a lot, a lot starts happening, a lot of fires come up. And a lot of you are like this. Like think about a day in the lab or the classroom where a lot of stuff starts going wrong. The day just gets off to a, a very busy start. A lot of us will lean into that by trying to do more, especially as PhDs, we think, well, I got to combat this with more activity, more action, et cetera. But you can often make things worse because you're reacting to your emotion in a way that might not be productive. When instead, if you took some time to sit back, to understand the problem, to understand what might be the best course of action before just throwing things at the wall, you could save a lot of time. I constantly do this just as an immediate knee-jerk reaction. I need to do more. Things are really busy right now. I got to pile on more. I got to wake up even earlier. I got to, I got to map this out. I got to set up better habits. And then the solution tends to get better if I step back and say, wait a sec, do less, like do less, understand the problem, 
really figure out what actions are going to be helpful because a lot of distractions create kind of like a, a fog of war, so to speak, where you don't really know uh, what's supposed to be done. Mary, do you have a similar reaction? What's your knee-jerk reaction or one that you've had that, you know, after talking to Nir, uh, that you might be better served doing something else? Like what immediately throws you into something that's pulling you away, right? Distracting you from what might be better than bringing you closer to what's actually productive. Um, I think just the sort of, if, if, if I'm in the middle of something and then people come in and message me all at the same time, I think that might be the most important thing. And I need to make a decision very quickly as opposed to slowing down and saying, okay, well, what is, what is going on now? What is that the priority? Is this as big as, as I think it is? Yeah. Yeah. Because everybody to everybody, everybody's own agenda is the most urgent agenda. And so being able to step back and say, okay, well, where is this, you know, for a company's perspective, where is this in terms of a priority for a company? Where is this in terms of priority for me and my career? This is crucial for all of you that are, you're finishing your PhDs or you're in a postdoc, unemployed, whatever it is, you can have all kinds of other people competing for your resources, your attention, your ability to execute, your your PI, your advisor, they're not concerned with your career first and foremost. They're concerned with their career. You have to understand this, no matter how great of a mentor you have. And you have to understand that your priority needs to be your career, your career progress, your career growth. What's giving you traction towards that, right? Don't, if you're just responding to other people's emails and to-dos, even if they're your boss, you're pushing forward their agenda, you're not pushing forward your own agenda, and, and this is a problem. Let's go over a couple more data points here. So breakdown of activity per week. Again, we just talked about this, but here's a pie chart. So 60% of work about work. It happens a lot. Uh, something, and sometimes I hear this and it gives me a sinking feeling because I'm like, I know I'm wasting a lot of time doing this. So probably make Mary laugh, but we do a lot of our meetings on Zoom, right? We're streaming on Zoom right now. Um, I will have to go back and put in the Zoom link to the meeting in my calendar all the time when I know there's an automatic way to link Zoom to your calendar. Just a little thing like that, and you're like, oh, it just takes two seconds. Just takes two seconds. But that all adds up. And it's not the two seconds itself, it's the uncertainty of emotions that you feel or the team feels. It's all those triggering events. And as PhDs, we can be oblivious to that, um, but it's better to be self aware. The average employee uses 10 different apps to complete their tasks every day. And the more apps they use, the longer they spend feeling distracted or procrastinating. So time spent feeling distracted and or procrastinating on a daily basis. Globally, one hour and four minutes. Australia, New Zealand, one hour and five minutes. Germany, one hour and 10. Japan, 52. UK, one hour and seven. US, one hour and four. So really, about an hour. No matter where you're from, people feel like they distract. And you might think, well, what's that hour? If you've heard us talk about mental energy levels, the, the Harvard uh, studies that have been done showing that we have about 90 to 120 minutes of peak productivity. That'll put this in perspective for you. If you're using half of your or more than half of your peak productivity time distracted and they tend to happen within, you know, it starts within a couple hours of waking up and it ends a couple hours after that. Most of us do that in the morning. We check email first thing, right? We get distracted or use all of our most powerful energy and focus for things that are not doing anything to push us forward. Anything to add, Mary? Yeah, I think, um, yes. And it, it, if you can set up your schedule to be, to protect that time at the beginning of the day to do the most important stuff, then, you know, even if the rest of your day isn't very productive, um, you, you, you can say that you have a win, right? Um, exactly. And being aware of that is, yeah, so important. 
According to a report, so in Workspace 2020, not all distractions are created equally. Meaningful distractions do not have the same impact on productivity as meaningless distractions. All right, so this is similar to what Nir said. How are you defining what a distraction is? And this is from uh, medialabamsterdam.com. So we're looking at a figure here, meaningless versus meaningful distractions. Uh, self-interruptions and internal stimuli on either side of this, right? So a meaningful self-interruption internal stimuli could be email or Facebook. A meaningless one could be ambient conversation. So one that is just, you're not in control of. It's just there. Think, you know, right now, any noise or buzzing that's happening in your lab or classroom or wherever you're watching that, that's a meaningless distraction that actually can eat away at, at some of your focus. Uh, chatter, a colleague's phone notification, movement, et cetera. That's the external stimuli. And then the meaningful one is movement of your neighbor, personal notifications, interruption by a colleague, et cetera. Things that you're directly involved in is meaningful. So there's a lot of different uh, studies out there. What this one is saying is that meaningful distractions do not have the same impact on productivity as meaningless distractions. Uh, so they affect you differently. And what I think, what I think well, well, where we will end there is just by noting that you're, most people focus on the meaningful distractions. Your office neighbor coming over and talking to you. You don't realize that all of the chatter and the instrument noise where you're at is also a distraction, right? Is also pulling you away from what you wanna do. This is why just going to a library <laughs> where it's quiet can dramatically increase your productivity. We hear a lot of people when they start to write their thesis, once they actually commit go to a library somewhere silent, lock themselves in a room, they're able to get a lot more done just because it's quiet. Just a question. So what do you think about all these people who say that they go to a coffee shop to work because they need the background noise? And I think there are apps as well, right? Of a recorded coffee shop conversation. Do you think that, that do you think different people are different or, or people are just not understanding what makes them productive? I think it's both. And mostly from the studies we've looked at of how, how much of the population is actually a night owl versus those who are not. So it, it, the numbers are staggering. Like over 90% of the population is, is what's called a lark. We looked at this on previous radio shows. Their mental energies peak scientifically through brain scans in the morning. Most people who consider themselves a night owl, their mental energy, their brain, blood flow, everything peaks in the morning. They just think they're a night owl. It's an excuse. I would say the same for the com com uh, people who think that conversation at a coffee shop. Show me the data, right? Like, let me see the data that shows that your output is greater at a coffee shop. Now, there are competing things there where sometimes changing your environment, your surroundings has been shown to increase productivity. If you go to the same thing over and over, just like if somebody's watching you, you'll be more productive. So there might be different things going on there, but don't think that it's the background noise that's making you more productive. Let's do one more. Social media, personal technology, killing productivity. Study finds out, but tech used uh, for business is also a contributor. Again, remember what Nir said. It's easy to paint technology or somebody else is the bad guy because it makes us feel better. And people want clicks on these articles so they don't embed any personal responsibility into it. They're just like, oh, it's not you. It's everything else. It's actually you. It's how you handle your emotions, your self-awareness. Um, that's why people have been talking about self-awareness and free will since, like Nir said, Plato. Uh, of course, before. Uh, so this is an eweek.com uh, article on IT management. It says 70% feel distracted at work. 54% believe distractions lower performance. To help manage distractions, 43% are turning off their phones during work hours. 30% are trying other techniques to stay focused. 
Um, th this is just going back to, to what we learned earlier in terms of what's, who, what's actually distracting. Small talk, discussions, people arriving late or coming early, technology. I think, Mary, we might need to put something together about how ev all of these things are triggered by you. You not discussing what your needs are in terms of focus. You're not telling people or mapping out in your calendar what times uh, you need to do focused work on. You're not, man you know, not scheduling your most uh, peak productivity hours. You're not aligning those with the most important items to do first thing in the day. Any final takeaways based on what Nir said, based on what these articles said? I'm actually glad that it came after because it it kind of proved his point. Everybody focuses on the technology and other people. There's very little about the personal responsibility of, of protecting your focus. Yeah, I, I think, you know, as soon as I think about, um, I'm getting distracted there for a minute. Um, <laughs> when people are trying to figure out what kind of um, position to target, um, it, it's a matter of a little self self-reflection, understanding what you respond well to when you are productive. I mean, I know we're saying that it's, it's first thing in the morning, um, mm. but can you, can you control that time? What can you do to be more productive then? And can you delay these distractions and just sort of owning that and taking stock? Yeah. I think that's yeah. the solution to, a lot, to overcoming a lot of challenges. No, I like that. And I, I agree. I mean, a lot of people will be the first to say, well, I have kids or I'm working during that time. My boss is in control, but can you get up 15 minutes earlier so that your peak productivity time starts 15 minutes before you got a TA or before you go into the lab. You can adjust your schedule. Um, you don't have to wake up at, you know, three in the morning or four in the morning to do this. Like even just 15 minutes of time during your peak productivity hours where you're, you're focused and you're, you're understanding your emotions, the triggering events, you have something planned out in your calendar, you have that, what do you call it, the uh, implementation intention. Uh, you can get a lot done in your job search. Uh, in, in a draft of your memo that you're going to bring with you to your, your performance review so you can get your promotion uh, for, for your overall career development. Mary, thank you very much. Great to see you. Please thank, thank you. Mary in the chat box for coming on to the show me the data section. Are you a PhD student or postdoc who wants to get an industry job? Are you tired of being paid one third or less of what you are worth in academia? but you don't know where to start. Maybe you've been uploading resumes over and over again, but you haven't heard anything back from an employer. Go to phdsgethired.com and get our free materials on how to get hired in industry. All you have to do is go to phdsgethired.com, put in your name and email address, and we will send you our resume guide, our networking scripts, and our other free trainings to help you start your job search now. Again, just go to phdsgethired.com. We're moving right along and we're going to, going to bring on our internal guest. So we had our leadership guest on, we did the show me the data. We're gonna bring on our, our external guest who's gonna talk about getting hired uh, into a senior innovation consultant position. Uh, we're bringing on Irene, Irene Castrano. And I'm gonna do a quick bio of her and then we're gonna bring her on live. So this is Irene. PhD pharmacist in biopharmaceutics. She's a senior innovation consultant. Uh, she is a PhD. Uh, she got her, uh, one of her degrees from Madrid, in, in Madrid, spent some time in Germany and completed her PhD at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, Dublin, Ireland. Within two years, uh, she did two year postdoc. She spent seven plus years in regenerative medicine and R&D. 
and generated relevant IP leading, uh, IP leading to a CEO Innovation Recognition Award. She also accumulated over 10 peer-reviewed publications, over 30 conference presentations in both Europe and the US, talks at primary schools, and 10-plus communication awards. She joined CSA in 2018, began networking and gaining confidence to surpass the imposter syndrome she was feeling, and made the transition uh, into industry from academia. Uh, since then, she's worked as a senior innovation consultant at Ispirelia Group, a, middle, a mid-sized company leading the public funding consulting uh, leading public and fund, funding consulting group in Europe, and also expanding into the U.S. Uh, she coordinates the preparation of bids by uh, EU-wide clients and many startups, requesting as much as 15 mil uh, from the H2020 framework. Very excited to have Irina on. I'm going to show her LinkedIn profile too. Make sure you're connecting with her on LinkedIn. We'll put the links in the post show notes and, of course, in the chat box. And with that, we'll bring on Irene, I'm going to make you co-host. You should be able to start your, your video now. Very excited to talk to you about what you do in your current role and how you got into it, where you can go, how PhDs can get into this role too. Hi, Irene. How are you? Hello. Uh, it's evening time for me. I know it's uh, around morning around there. So yes. happy to join you. Yeah, uh, thank you. Happy, uh, good evening then. Yes. <laughs> So I had my whole day. Uh, it was very interesting to hear from Nir and uh, yeah. all the discussion actually, uh, of course, as well as the peak for hiring at the end of the year, there's a lot of peaks of work as well. Yeah. Uh, so it's good to hear some strategies for enhancing a little bit more the focus and I'm sure I'll be able to put some of those in practice too. So. Absolutely. Yeah, you bring up a good point. It's a good time of year to ask for a promotion as well. Budgets <laughs> yeah. are high. It's a real bad time in Jan and Feb in most cases because everybody's really busy kicking off the year and getting all the start of year strategies done. So yeah, maybe that's a, an idea for you. So, so Irene, thank you for coming on. Please say hello to Irene in the chat box if you haven't already. I have to know, what is a senior innovation consultant? I love the title. I'd love yes. to hear what you do. Um, thank you. Yes, I think I struggle even nearly as much to explain that than to explain my PhD. <laughs> really? So, yes, no, a, a little bit less. So it's, it's a part of uh, innovation where you are mainly directing companies to present what is it they offer so that they can raise money basically to eventually do what they need to do. Mm. Okay. So innovation is in the part of, yes, either new products or new solutions or new companies. And all of these uh, at one point or another needs financing injections. They need investment. And um, there is an important body of work to help people present their needs to public bodies. So a lot of people in the US, for example, will be very familiar with the SBIR programs. And yeah. this is very similar. The kind of framework in Europe has slightly adopted that system as well. And so actually my colleagues over in the US are working a lot with SBIR among others too. Um, but what I do is I, I meet with clients. I organize um, calendars. I organize calendars with my collaborators, with our uh, writers, they have like the proposal writer titles, 
and we organized a work plan to prepare all the documentation for the proposal that is sent to the public body. So that involves a lot of things. It involves a lot of technical expertise in multiple areas, like very multidisciplinary cross really wide aspects. Um, it involves a lot of skills of, uh, you know, handling tests, actual writing, but involves a lot of verbal communication, lots of meetings, lots of questioning to get the information from the client, lots of portraying guidelines to the person that is working with you, organizing meetings, a good bit of traveling. I'm actually traveling at least once a month. There's um, the company is very dynamic, so we are all over Europe, really. We are based, I'm, I'm in the office now, actually. We're based in Madrid, but we have clients all over Europe. Soon okay. I'll be going to Iceland for one of the projects. Uh, just recently, I was in Brussels with some clients that are actually from Greenland. So, <laughs> so wow. it's, um, I, you are exposed to a lot of things. Um, basically, I'm working with profiles that involve high management in all cases. But um, of course, the part of the work I am, it's all dedicated to small and medium enterprises. So, so, so let me just jump in real quick, Irene, if it's okay. So you yes. help small, medium-sized companies get funding? Yes. Whether it's from the government or from private sources? I'm specially dedicated to government, but we have some part with connection from private sources too. Yes. And are you, so are you technically an industry company or would you be more in the nonprofit or more in the government or a little bit? No, of yeah, it's industry. So it's definitely for profit. We have okay. our KPIs very established. Something that I think works quite well here, even though I have to say it is quite ambitious, but we have very clear what is our contribution in terms of technical output and in terms of money all through the year what is our workload and how we can make that happen or not. Um, right now, I had a follow-up meeting with my manager like three months ago. I know I already made my, um, uh, my target objective for the bonus for the year at that stage, and I might likely surpass that. And when we were starting the year, it seemed like quite impossible to reach that. So definitely I have to look into the promotion thing, but. <laughs> no, but, that's great. But, but uh, so what yeah. was your objective based on? Was it, was it based on how many? It's uh, based on uh, past data. It's based on past data because a lot of the revenue that is coming into the company is based on success fees. So the projects that are basically recruited, we have some um, innovation process managers that identify the leads and get the clients to agree. So we don't really come up with the projects ourselves, we identify them. We have an entrance fee for the projects and then when we are successful and they do get the money, we get a little bit, uh, a little slice oh. of that pie. I see, so you get a, so the company gets a commission from the small mid-sized company client yes. uh, if they get uh, awarded money from any of these sources. Yes. And yes. you are really doing a lot of the coordination Yes, exactly. And are, are, you, are you consulting more with the businesses or the funding sources or both equally? Well, we have uh, 
instructions, basically public guidelines from the funding sources because everything has to be yes. publicly available. We don't really directly contact with them unless uh, some of the management has contacts when there's a specific changes of programs, but really my contact, basically there is a set of instructions and deadlines and we just from the public body and we have to meet them. That's all the contact. My real contact is with the client. I'm having days where the average number of meetings with different projects and clients is at least two or three. And there is a lot of topics switching because they, they can be very different topics all the time. And there are different stages in their development queue. And then, yeah, there's all the multiculturality component as well. So the, even though English is used all the time, if we have a local language with them, we also use it sometimes. So okay. there's a lot of changing. <laughs> so you're so you're managing people, you're managing the project overall, probably multiple accounts, I'm guessing, multiple projects. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and then this involves uh, a lot of time management, I'm assuming, uh, understanding yeah. the budgets, the commissions, uh, everything yeah. that is involved, correct? Yes, there is a lot of um, pre-planning, like I completely agree with the part of the show me the data that we were having here because I just have to spend so much time organizing how we're going to do mm. the things done, eventually doing them. And I think that is a big switch that took me a while to, to get used to because yeah. uh, when I identified this position as something I'd like to do, I really there was a lot of things about the day-to-day -day basis that surprised me a lot and that some of them were easier to adapt and some of them it's it's not so easy at the end of the day there's when there is a lot of work volume which actually is not infrequent in it's quite often in consulting and there's a lot of work volume you don't have that much time for planning if you haven't done it already um so one of the key challenges in the kind of job I'm doing is actually rescheduling. I think there is a lot of uncertainty. My work depends on managing clients, giving me information and writer. And writer has to get information on his side or her side. So right. either of the pieces of the puzzle can break my plan of how things have to work out and there can be also sometimes personal reasons but mostly it's just reasons that i won't know that escape my control and then i have to be readapting constantly it's a constant okay. um you know there's a hypothetical plan yes. and then it's less than 20 percent of the cases that that's what happens in reality yes so, and so what, what are some roles that because a lot of companies use different job titles uh, today. Yeah. What, what are some similar roles? It sounds like senior innovation consultant has some aspect of, of a project manager, some aspects of a project coordinator. What other roles in your industry? What are some of the similar job titles in your industry? Yes, I think the, the, similar, the most similar role that it equates to is probably project management. Okay. Uh, project manager at a kind of intermediate level because I'm not doing most of the technical work itself of actually controlling the the project execution because okay. i um the idea is that my position is kind of overseeing that and the person that is more executing that part has to like kind of report to me yes. so it's it's would be similar to that but there is a strong component of the 
technical writing itself. That could be very much medical writing because okay. that's basically the area the majority of the projects I'm working with involves. So it's a little bit about uh, not losing familiarity with all the regulations for um, what are going to be barriers for the projects to get into the market. So stay on top of the regulations and stay on top of um, IP searches, uh, looking up competitor companies of the solutions. So you really stay on top of the market in very kind of Yes. technology spaces so yeah, yeah it's a uh, it's very kind of bits and, we see, and we see this a lot for there's a lot of phds a lot of associates who've been hired into these consultant positions where it's almost a term used so that they can have you do multiple things right so yes. not pigeonholing you as a project manager or as a medical writer or as regulatory affairs but it's all those three things together and we see this a lot for small to mid-sized companies. They will hire. So if, for those of you looking for jobs, if you haven't explored things like consultant, look for those. It doesn't always mean management consultant. It's, you know, if you see innovation consultant or, or project consultant, scientific consultant, you're likely going to have a, a writing component, a technical writing component, project management or project coordination component, and then regulatory affairs or documentation uh, a component as well. So I really appreciate you mapping that out. My last question is, so where do you go from here? Where have you seen other senior innovation consultants move into, both vertically at your company, other company, or, or, or laterally? Yes, I think in innovation, at the end of the day, you're burgeoning with so much like stimuli from everyone. A lot of people move on to eventually like setting up their own companies because um, at the end of the day, we are really helping companies build like very strong business plans so that mm. their business become a reality. So that's a very logical progression that I see around me, not that I see it really for myself at this stage. Yes. <laughs> um, because of my my traits and so on but um for me i really see a kind of more lateral uh, transition to being more the part that is attracting the the clients and the part that is um getting in touch and trying to identify those companies or i don't know if uh, transitioning into a more kind of instead of keeping doing the consultancy part uh pivot into one of those potential companies that has a, a nice role eventually coming up with the new money that they received. Yes. So, uh, because at the end of the day, you get to know so many people. It's a fantastic way to open your network and not in one sector, but in many, I know there are small sectors, but many sectors. So I, I think it makes you very polyvalent and you just have to see where you can continue stretching it from there and a lot of the time it's going to happen by contacts and connections and and that's uh, a lot of the things i've taken on from from my you know all the materials yeah. of the of the csa so well thank you very much irene for coming on and for for adding value back and, and congratulations on your role and okay. uh, again thank you very much good to see you have a good very evening good to see you thanks for having me good evening Please. everyone Please thank Irene in the chat box if you would or wherever you are watching the live stream.
This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Pump up the bass.